done. Okay, so diving into the preach for today, as it is so regularly my privilege to do. We have so often said, especially in light of what the last few years of life have looked like for us, that we live in a crazy world and in crazy times. And I believe at the heart of all of this craziness is the battle of what it means to be free. What is our vision for humanity? And what does freedom look like for humanity? And so whether we're debating people or policies or politics or procedures, at the heart of it is competing views of what flourishing humanity should look like, and by that, what freedom for humanity should look like. And whenever you climb into any one of these debates, and I'm not going to try and not mention any of them, but regardless of the debate, what you're always going to see is the tension between certain areas where someone is arguing, these people should be free to do whatever they want. And then there are going to be other areas where the people are arguing, no, we need to legislate or we need to have boundaries in place. And people in these areas of life should not be free to do whatever they want. And when the debate goes on, and if you look into the details and the heart of the debates, it is always going to be this side is saying, in this area of life, people should be free to do whatever they want. The other side is saying, no, 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 in that area of life, we need to legislate, we need to have policies, we need to have guidelines. And of course, on this side, the exact opposite is happening. Now, not only does this happen out there in politics and on social media and around the dinner table, but this always happens in our churches. And what is it when we talk about where are we going as humans and what does a truly flourishing, free human look like? When and where is it that we are encouraging you just do whatever you want? And where and how and where were we looking when we are saying maybe there are some guidelines that are going to move us towards a particular vision of freedom, a particular vision of a flourishing humanity. And what becomes really difficult, whether it's the church space or the political space or any other space, because we do this in families as well, right? For those of you who have been parents, when are we taking our foot off the gas saying, let them choose in this area of development, let them choose whatever they want, and then there are going to be other areas in the development where we are going to have guidelines and consequences, right? And how and when do we do that? And what is the vision we have for our children where we know we have successfully raised a flourishing, free, autonomous, responsible human being? What makes it so difficult, whether it's politics, family, or it's church, is when my vision of freedom conflicts with your vision of freedom. And where I have a particular area of my life where I desire to, in inverted commas, be free and do whatever I want. And when in that area of my life, I'm being given rules and guidelines and restrictions. 
And the reason why I raise all of this is because this is exactly the tension at the heart of so much of the New Testament and also so much of the book of Galatians where we as a church have been journeying. I think we're on week six now. All of our sermons are available online and on YouTube and we're in no way are we going to be able to recap everything. But at the heart of it is exactly this debate. See, Paul started a whole lot of churches. People found freedom in Christ. And then after Paul left, these other leaders came in. These leaders had a conservative Jewish background. They had come to faith in Christ, and they were rightly saying, yes, we need to trust in Jesus. He's the true King. He's the true Messiah. And if you want to live out the life that God wants for you, you need to trust Jesus and you need to obey all the restrictions and all the guidelines and all the laws of the Old Testament. And that is what a life pleasing to God looks like. And Paul comes in so strongly. Paul has been so worked up because he's saying, when you add law to what Jesus has done, that is no longer a gospel. It's not even a diluted gospel. To quote him, he says, this is no gospel at all. In fact, he says, you've polluted and perverted the gospel. And so this is the tension. What does freedom look like? What do guidelines look like? And how do we live this life out? And so if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you, and I really encourage you that you do, we're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 5. And just to kind of let you know, up to this point in time, Paul has been giving this church, every reason and every argument why this path of legalism that they've been on is so dangerous. And as I said to you last week, we're making a bit of a turn this week. Where we're moving more away from what is so dangerous about legalism and what does God have for us. We're going to move away from slavery to legalism and we're going to move towards something. And so the verses we're going to be looking today fall into three sections. The first section is, where are we heading? What does God want for us? The second section we're going to read is Paul is going to once again warn us about the dangers of adding legalism to our faith. And number three, the third section is Paul is going to warn us about the equal and opposite danger. All right, so knowing that, let's dive in. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. And we're just going to start off with verse 1. This is the first section. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, this is the kind of verse that makes it onto pictures of sunsets and onto our WhatsApp phones right? This is the kind of verse that we memorize. This is the kind of verse that makes it onto our, our, into our songs. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And here's where I want us to take notice. What does God want for us? When we come out of slavery, where are we heading? And this verse defines that for us. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And yes, something that I'm going to say a number of times today, and I hope that it sinks in. What Jesus wants to see is you living free. What Jesus wants to see 
is you living free. If you, what is Christianity all about? Why did Jesus come? What is he up to? Where are we heading? This is the answer. What Jesus wants to see is you living free. And that is our Christian vision. But I wonder if that is our vision. I wonder if we know that is our North Star. That is where we're going. We're heading towards freedom. And as I was thinking about it, there were a number of things that I could bring up, things that maybe deter us from the vision of freedom. And of course, these verses bring up a number of them, but, you know, one of the ones that I wanted to talk about this morning was a few years ago, I was challenged, I forget who challenged me in the first time, not directly, but just through reading and that kind of thing. And this pastor challenged me saying, is your gospel a Genesis 3 gospel or a Genesis 1 gospel? Some of you are like, uh, let me just quickly read Genesis 1 and 3 and see what you're talking about. Let me explain. Most theologians, when they look at the whole story of Scripture, the meta-narrative of Scripture, the story in which other stories fit into, most theologians agree that that big story, and they quibble maybe about the wording and maybe you know, some of the past, but on average, most theologians agree that there are four major sections to the story. The first section starts in Genesis chapter 1, the opening page of Scripture, creation. The second part of the story is Genesis chapter 3, the fall, and how sin entered the world. Then we've got the third chapter of the story, and that is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And then the fourth chapter of the story is new creation. And we're just going to leave this picture up before you as we talk about this. You see, if we have what I spoke about earlier, a Genesis 3 gospel, Genesis 3, which is basically chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about chapter 3 of that four-chapter story over there. Genesis chapter 3 tells a story of how sin entered the world, of how brokenness entered the world, how things went wrong. That is why we look at the world around us and we even look inside our own hearts and we see so much that is troubling, so much that is wrong, so much that is contrary to God's great and loving purposes for us and for creation. So that is Genesis chapter 3. And so we start the story over there. And then what do we need? If this is the problem, well, we need the solution, and that is chapter 3. And chapter 3 is the story of Jesus. God as king, bringing his kingdom here, bringing his reign here, demonstrating his love, demonstrating his sovereignty, demonstrating this is what my kingdom looks like and here is what I'm gonna do as your king. I know that you cannot do anything about sin, so I'm gonna do it on your behalf. And so I'm gonna take the full consequences of sin upon me as Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, and I'm going to defeat the powers of sin, death on the cross. And that is the story of redemption. Now, if you've been at Riverside for any period of time, you would know that for us, chapter 2 and 3 of this story are incredibly important. If you're going to take the pain and suffering and challenges of this world seriously, and or if you're going to take the story of Scripture seriously, we are going to take chapter 2 seriously.
the fact that sin is not just a whole bunch of bad habits, but it is something so fatal that leads us towards death. And it's something that somehow, despite our greatest efforts, we cannot purge ourselves of. And that, of course, leads to so much of the suffering in the world around us. So we at Riverside here take that very seriously. And then if we look at chapter 3, the person in the work of Jesus, we want to point towards the person in the work of Jesus here at Riverside every single Sunday. And today we are taking chapter 3 so seriously that we are going to be doing a communion service later on. And so chapter 2 and 3 are so important. But here's the thing. While they are so important, they are not the whole story. If our gospel is only chapter 2 and 3, they are true fundamental parts of the story, but they're not the whole story. And so if we go to the real beginning of the story, we see, well, this is what God wants for humanity. This is what God's design is for humanity. This is what it looks like when man relates to God, well. When man relates to other human beings, well. When man relates to himself, well. And when man relates to creation, well. This is what freedom looks like. This is what flourishing looks like. This is the vision of what God had for us. Then we know in chapter 2, this is how we got off that path. Away from life, away from freedom, towards slavery and towards death. And then we go to chapter 3, the life and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then we get to the real ending of the story. Where God reestablishes everything that he established in chapter 1 to a greater degree. Where for all of eternity, we are going to spend an eternity relating well to God in freedom, relating well to others in freedom, relating well to self in freedom, and relating well to creation in freedom, and it is going to be good. So we need chapter 1 and chapter 4 to help us know what was it that God wanted for us. And here's how things went wrong. And here's what Jesus has done to restore that. And here's where we're going. And I believe that when the Scriptures talk about freedom, that is what they have in mind. So I want to encourage all of us as we think about our hearts and what occupies our conversations, that we don't only have a Genesis 3 gospel, but we've got a Genesis 1 gospel. So let's go back to the passage. And I said, so that is section one. Section two is Paul once again warning us about the dangers of legalism. Now, we're going to pick up that Paul is still, how can I say this, a little bit worked up. And in fact, he has some of his harshest things to say. And for those of us who have a tendency towards legalism, instead of going over, Steve, we heard this last week. For some reason, Paul has found it wise to repeat himself again and again. And he turns up the volume in the section over here. And so let's see why Paul is so agitated and why legalism is so dangerous. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised, listen to this, Christ will be of no value to you at all. 
Now, he's not talking about the act of circumcision. He's talking about the heart where we look to the law to make us right with God. Again, I declare to every man who let himself be circumcised, this is just a symbol of the law, that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified, made right with God by the law, have been alienated from Christ. I said this last week. This church was thinking by adding the law to their faith, it was taking them closer to God. Paul is saying, this is taking you away from God. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. We're going to talk more about the Spirit next week. For in Christ Jesus, not the law, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. He says, you were running a good race. In other words, you started well. Who cuts in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. In other words, this little perversion of the gospel is working through the whole church here. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those agitators, these teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I'm not going to put up any pictures on the screen. Paul is so worked up because Christ becomes of no value to us when we look to our own good works, our own rule keeping, our own ability to look to the law and keep it as our way of being right with God. So that is section two. Now we're going to move to section three where Paul warns us about the equal and opposite problem. And I'm going to read the verses and make a few comments. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping with this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We kind of covered this last week and we're going to comment a little bit more later on where some of us may think, okay, Paul, if I'm tracking with you, trying to look to my good works and rule keeping and keeping the law on top of the grace that God gives me as a way of being right with God, if that is so dangerous and if what you want for me is freedom, then maybe, Paul, what we're going to do is out with the big, bad, ugly law and in with whatever I want to do. And Paul knows that that is going to be our reaction. And so he says, listen, the opposite of being legalistic is not do whatever you want, but rather, he says, in your desire to be free, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So, Basically, what we've got here are two ditches. Ditch number one, where Paul has been hanging out for most of the book of Galatians, is the ditch of legalism. 
a form of slavery where we look to our own ability to keep the law to make us right with God. That's ditch number one. Ditch number two is where we go. It's the equal and opposite danger is when we, in so-called, in inverted commas, freedom, we live according to the flesh and according to the sinful desire. And so we have these two ditches that we need to avoid. But don't think that the middle road is somehow a compromise, a little bit of that ditch and a little bit of that ditch, or a, a happy medium. Rather, it's got nothing to do with those two ditches. Think of it more as a road that leads towards freedom. A road that leads us towards human flourishing, what God truly desires for every single one of us. Because what Jesus wants to see is you living free. Now, as we so often say here at Riverside, it's not good enough to say amen. It's not good enough to say, that was a great sermon. That was even thought-provoking. We need to hear the word and do the word. And so I'm going to ask us a few questions that are going to help us self-diagnose so we can take action on ourselves and move out of those ditches onto the path towards freedom. And so question number one is this. What ditch, some of you English buffs, could, I was divided. Do I go which ditch or what ditch? Which ditch to sounded weird? So what ditch do you spend most of your time in? So to riff off last week, some of you, like the older brother in the prodigal son story, some of you spend a lot of time in the ditch of legalism. And rule keeping as a way of getting God in heaven to be pleased with you. Some of you spend a lot of time in this ditch. It's the ditch of the younger brother, pleasing the flesh, living according to the sinful nature. Some of you are Stephen, I'm bouncing so quickly between those two ditches, I can't make up my mind. Here's something I want to be honest with you about. Paul has been using the book of Galatians to talk mostly about this ditch. He spends a lot of time in other books talking about that ditch, and he raises that ditch today. And the term that he uses for us when we are in either one of these ditches is the term slavery. And that is supposed to be shocking. And if you know anything about old world or new world slavery, it is truly shocking. It is dehumanizing, and it is violence. Here's the problem, and I'm going to just get us to be honest with us when we're living in one of these two ditches. I'm going to start with this one. For those who are living in this ditch, it is a whole lot of fun. It doesn't feel like slavery. To quote Craig Rochelle, if you're sinning and it doesn't feel good, you're doing it wrong. Sin feels good. Indulging the flesh feels good. And then some pastor stands up on a stage and screams at me and calls it slavery, but I can't hear it because it feels good. But then every now and again, we have a moment of clarity. Maybe it's at rock bottom. Maybe it's with a pounding headache in the middle of the night. But a moment of clarity where you ask yourself this question, is this everything is cut out to be. Maybe is this ditch over-promising and under-delivering? 
is this truly the life I want to live? And so maybe you come to some sort of resolve. I don't know if I want to remain in this ditch. I want to get back into the middle of the road. What happens the next day is you find yourself back in the ditch. And there, church, is the definition of slavery. Yes, it feels good, but every time you jump out, you find yourself back in. So that's this ditch. If I talk about this one, for those of you who are the prodigals, this may sound strange to you, but if you do find yourself in this ditch, you would know that this is true. This ditch also feels good. Oh, wow, when I obey all the rules, wow, I feel good. It helps me feel so righteous. It helps me feel so right. It helps me feel so proud. And it helps me look down at everyone in that ditch over there. And similarly, we may have those moments of clarity where we see the pride and the self-righteousness in our hearts and we say to ourselves, I don't know if I like what I'm seeing. Let me get out of the ditch, get back on the road, and what happens the next morning? I'm back in the ditch. Which, friends, is a definition of slavery. By my own devices, I somehow cannot stay in the road and get out of the ditch. And so the first question for every single one of you is, which ditch do you find yourself most often hanging out in? Let's go to question number two. Question number two is, what is your definition or your vision of Christianity? Let's just get honest. Why do we do this? I mean, you could be playing golf. You could be sleeping in. You could be, you know, continue the drinking from last night, whatever. You could be doing a whole lot of things right now. Why do we go to this thing called church? Why do we sacrifice time? Why do we sacrifice resources? Why do we say no to certain things that I know are going to make me feel good? What is the vision? What is it all for? Now, I'm sure if there's 240 people here in the room, there's 240 different answers. But one thing I know is that for many of us, we have believed a true but an insufficient story about the reason for it all. For many of us, this is all about, well, I grit my teeth, I go to church, I do the right thing, I get through this life so that I don't have to go to the bad place and I can go to the good place. Now, when it comes to things of eternity, the Scriptures are clear. There is so much more that, uh, than this life. And the scriptures have glorious and sober language for what that is all about and the consequences thereof. And so absolutely, that is a true story. And just like sometimes we can reduce a four-chapter story to two chapters and miss out on what God wants for us. So in, in a bit of a reductionist way, by saying the whole of this is about going to the good place and not the bad place, while that may be true, it is insufficient. Because this verse, and I believe the story arc of Scripture, tells us what it's about. And the vision, the reason for it all, 
is not to go through that door as opposed to that door, but it's for freedom. And it's not just for some time in the future. It starts today. It is for freedom and everything that God wants to pour into that idea and into that word. That's what I want for you. That is why I set you free. That is why I've done what I've done. It is for freedom. Because what Jesus wants to see is you living free. So what is your vision? Christianity, which leads us to question number three. Does your life express freedom in Christ? Let me ask the question in another way. Does the way you live your faith point towards freedom in Christ? You see, the person who finds himself in this ditch, here's what everyone knows about them and what everyone can see in them. Here's what they express. I love the rules, I hate sin, and I'm against those people. And then we get to those living in this ditch. Here's what is expressed. Here's what everyone can see as plain as it is daytime right now. I love my sin. I hate the rules. And I'm against those people. And if someone had to observe our life, so often what is expressed, whether we're in this ditch or that ditch, is what we're against. And so the question I ask is, what are you for? And do you live your life in such a way, in such a life-giving, compelling way that somehow maybe the world around you doesn't have the right language, but if you had to give them the language of freedom, they'd say, yes, Yes, that is how he lives his life. That is what her life looks like. Somehow she's free from rules and obligation. And at the same time, somehow he or she is free from being slaves to sin. And they demonstrate life and they demonstrate freedom and they demonstrate purpose. So if it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, can people see that in our behavior and in our lives and in our choices? Now, don't get too discouraged if the answer is, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's all the time. Because I do find myself in these ditches, and I'm the first one to put my hand up. But at some point, we've got to ask ourselves, am I setting down my roots in these ditches? Or am I, by the grace of God, doing everything I can to live according to the freedom that Jesus has won for me in a way that is evident? And compelling. And finally, question number four. What motivates your freedom? It's not going to be on the screen behind me, but this comes up here in verse six, where Paul says, the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, that's a massive statement. The only thing that counts is faith, a genuine trust and surrender to Jesus Christ is faith expressing itself in love. 
He double clicks on that in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh or the sinful nature. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Maybe you're struggling to ask yourself, well, what does it look like if, if I'm gonna live on the road to freedom and I'm gonna not live in this ditch or in this ditch? This is the answer to that question. It looks like humility. Because legalism and rule keeping is selfish and indulging the sinful nature is all about me. And if I make it about others and if I make it about Jesus, I'm gonna live a humble life. This verse also tells us that it's about love. It's about loving neighbor, loving brothers and sister, loving family, loving those who are different to me, loving even my enemies. And what it looks like is serving those very same people. Some of you theologians out there, you might look at this verse and be a bit troubled. And Paul talks about the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You might say, I've heard that before. I'm pretty sure Jesus said something like the entire law is fulfilled by two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. What's going on with Paul here? And I believe if we track just the entire story of Jesus, and if we track with the entire story of Paul, and even people like Peter and the Apostle John, what we're going to see is their conviction that our love of God is going to be expressed by our love for neighbor. That's, as John would say, you cannot say you love God and yet hate your neighbor. And so, yes, Paul is not saying that we ignore loving God. But if you truly have God's love in you, that is going to manifest itself and express itself by love for neighbor. And if you are going to live the life, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. It's going to look like humility, love, and service of one another. I think it was Martin Luther who said, listen, love God and do whatever you want. And yes, this is going to include some guidelines, some guardrails that are designed not to restrict our freedom, but to empower our freedom, to shape us to become the kinds of people that are free. For example, a fish is most free when it is living in the confines of water. A fish outside of water is not free. A Lamborghini is most free when it is between the confines of a straight, flat road without our wonderful potholes here in South Africa. Oh, but that's restrictive. I want my Lamborghini to go up and down the hills here in Akonov. 
dude, go for it. Just don't bring the bill to me. And in the same way, yes. If you want to understand what I believe the compelling vision for humanity looks like, as well as some of these guidelines from the mouth of Jesus himself, go and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what is known as the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Where I believe if we had to read those chapters, we'd see such a beautiful vision of what God has for us as a humanity. But part of those vision, yes, are guidelines not to restrict your freedom, but to enable your freedom. And so as we come towards the table, the third chapter of that story, I want us to go back to that opening verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus acted. Jesus did something to do what we could not do, which is manufacture our own freedom. And so Jesus had to do it. And why did he do it? Because what Jesus wants to see is you living free. And I believe what every single one of us is going to face today is an act of trust. Am I going to trust my definition of freedom and what I am naturally inclined to do, whether it leads towards this ditch or that ditch? Or am I going to trust freedom as determined by my Creator? You see, on one hand, we serve Jesus, who is rightfully Lord, a sovereign king. And a sovereign king has every right to sovereignly declare what his kingdom looks like. So Stephen is, Jesus, just arbitrarily making up rules as he goes. No, because not only is Jesus a sovereign king, he is an infinitely wise king, and he is an infinitely loving king. And so when he says, here's the vision that I have for you, here's what freedom looks like, and here are some restrictions which you may butt your head up against, or culture may bump its head, bump its head up against, these are not there, regardless of what culture says or what your heart says. These are not there. If we're going to trust our king, if we're going to trust our king, these are not there to restrict your freedom, but to enable your freedom. As we come to the table, I want you to do it not as an act of religiosity, but as an act of trust, as an act of faith, And part of that faith is, yes, going to be accepting who Jesus is, what he's done, what his definition of freedom looks like. Part of that faith is going to be laying down my definition of freedom. 
maybe acknowledging, we call this repentance, acknowledging that these are the ditches that I regularly fall into and I have discovered that I'm a slave to these ditches and so I'm gonna come as an act of faith to the one who has set me free. If you look at the crosses, I just, ladies, thank you so much. They've put these broken chains around the crosses. Because what Jesus wants to see is you living free. And then we come to embrace, to truly embrace what God does have for me. And Jesus took this so seriously. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Then in order to bring you to freedom, from this ditch's side, he climbed into the ditch. And for every human being and for every law that has ever been broken, Jesus took the consequences of that upon himself. And he took the curse upon himself. By the way, the only one who has ever fully obeyed the law perfectly. What does that look like, the cross? So whether we find ourselves in slavery to the law or slavery to our sin, the cross is like a path. It's like a gateway. It's like a means. It's like a road towards freedom. And I want to invite you to take the hand of Jesus today as we take communion together. So let us pray. And then in your own time, in your own time of reflection, let's come before the Lord, allow Him to do some work in our hearts. And then we'll conclude together. Jesus, what you, de what you desire to see is us living free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I don't think there's a person here in this room that can say they are living in complete freedom. Jesus, by going to the cross and by defeating death and the curse and sin and our enemy and by rising again from the grave, you have demonstrated the broken chains and you're inviting us towards this vision that you have for us. And so God, as we come to the table, this great redemptive work that you have done, Jesus, we lay down our sin and we repent and we come to you and we say, Jesus, do what I could not do and set me free. Do what I could not do and set me free. So church, with that heart, let's take of the Lord's Supper together.